Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As we've seen in all the prior chapters of this book so far, Paul is addressing some very real and personal matters in the church and, and in our homes and our private lives. You've heard the quote by the missionary, right? If it weren't for these people, I'd be a great missionary. Or, or the pastor, right? If it weren't for my congregation, I'd be a great pastor. But what does the churchgoer say? The churchgoer says, I love my church. It's the people I can't stand. Relationships. It's all about relationships. And relationships require hard work. They don't come naturally to the selfish person. And this letter of the church in Corinth is largely about relationships. How can we live this life together in such a way that it honors God and blesses those around us and unites us and shows the world what Christianity is really supposed to look like? Today's study is in, in these chapters 8 and beyond is going to continue to hone in on relationships. And Paul is going to teach us how to properly exercise our personal freedoms, specifically as it pertains to lovingly limiting our freedoms. We're going to see that Paul says, if I have to sacrifice a good stake at a good price so that a fellow brother or sister in Christ can grow in their faith, then of course I'm going to let the stake go. He says, if I have to sacrifice, let go of a, a, a right or a pleasure or a preference or even an entitlement, as he's going to say, so that someone else can get saved, then of course I'm going to let those things go. These choices seem like no-brainers until it's our right and our personal freedom that gets tested. It's no secret that there is much contention in the church over matters of personal liberty, what a person can and cannot do within the bounds of holiness. And if you want to light a fire in the church, just ask a group of people, what kinds of music are acceptable for Christians to listen to, right? How should Christian ladies dress in the summer, especially at the poolside? Or, or what about, is it a sin to drink alcohol? Or, or who are you to tell me what kind of movies I can and can't watch? Much of this contention, as we're going to see, comes from a wrong view of our freedom of conscience. And sometimes the behavior of one Christian negatively can impact another Christian. And the next thing you know, people are both rightfully and wrongfully accusing each other of being the all-too-familiar term, a stumbling block. And this relationship framework has resulted in no small amount of spite and strife and division and arrogance in the church. And here in chapter 8, Paul drops the gavel and he makes a startling announcement. It is not supposed to be like this in the church. This is not what true Christians behave like. And as he has already been pointing out in the prior seven chapters, this strife, this contention that comes over the matter of personal liberty, the strife is the fruit of jealousy and arrogance and selfish ambition. 
Instead of living to proclaim Christ crucified, this is just one more of the manifestations of living for self, regardless of which side you are on in this contention. But thankfully, it doesn't have to be this way. There is a better way, and you know this. And I just want to say how thankful I am to God for the remarkably small amount of strife of this kind that I see in the church. But there is always room for us to grow, and that's what we want God to give us today, growth. And this morning, I'd like to devote a good portion of our study time to the reading of Scripture. We're going to read straight through chapters 8, 9, and 10 because they all belong together. And as I mentioned a few weeks back, it's good for us as a church family to often read the word in large portions. God's word speaks powerfully without explanation. And sure, meditation and study and, and, and group study, etc., are good and right and necessary, but so is the simple and pure reading of the word. So as we read these scriptures today, notice three points that Paul capitalizes on. He says how we exercise our personal freedoms should take into account three things. Number one, the spiritual impact on fellow believers. Number two, the advancement of the gospel. And three, the glory of God. Keep these three things in mind as we read. When we shift our priority and our focus off of self and onto those three things, it does change our logic. It changes what we value. It really does move our thinking from the foolishness of man to the wisdom of God. And that is what we want today. Let's bow our heads again and ask God to give us that wisdom. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how it not only gives us the understanding and the wisdom and the ability to have a right relationship with you, but also with each other. I doubt that there is a person in this room who does not enjoy unity and savor friendship. Lord, we all want to have relationships that are at peace and that bless each other. And yet there is the matter of life and the choices we make that we have to contend with and work our way through together. And we ask, Lord, that this morning you would give us wisdom from above that is peaceful and pure and gentle, etc., so that we might know how we ought then to live this life in light of those around us. Lord, we pray for unity, not just for our sakes, but oh, so much so, more so for yours, for the testimony of God, for an, as an example of what the gospel can do in the lives of those who cling to it. We all know that we live in a world that is full of strife and war and division. Lord, let the church of Jesus Christ be a fresh savor and scent to this world. Help us to live in such a way that the world looks at us and sees the glory of God. We pray that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin reading in chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, 
He has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, 
I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things with the which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but for the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered considering that for which I gave thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Are we seeing the big picture? When we read all three of those chapters, are we beginning to catch the heart attitude that Paul is after? We need to dig in and study the individual verses, but we need to make sure we don't miss the whole point. There is an attitude of selflessness and humility and a willingness to sacrifice that frees a person to inspire others to spiritual growth, that propels the gospel rather than hinders it, and that brings great glory to God rather than bringing shame to his name. Let's explore these truths. Back to chapter 8. We're not going to study every verse or read through it all again, but we're going to summarize the various portions of text. We're going to try to identify key verses and see how it applies to us for the better. So chapter 8, verse 1. Look at the foundation that the first two verses lay for all three of these chapters. He says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Paul brings two ingredients to the table. What are they? Knowledge and love. And he uses these to point out one of the greatest struggles of the in the church, and that is the danger of having knowledge without love. It is not to put down knowledge but to instruct us in its proper use and to put it in its proper place, and that is secondary to love. The knowledge being referenced here is a religious understanding, a religious knowledge. We could call it doctrinal facts. We could call it theology and theological truths. We could call it biblical applications. It's religious in nature. And in this case, it was referenced specifically to idol worship, and everything associated with it, particularly, again, meat that was sacrificed to idols. Should Christians eat it? In just two short verses, Paul puts knowledge and the knowledgeable person in their place. 
In modern day terms, we're looking at the know-it-alls in the church. The person with strong opinions and weak love. We learn from Paul that knowledge alone will make us arrogant. It has a dangerous and even sinful and divisive potential. It can be highly counterproductive if misused. You could say that it's like a firearm in the hands of someone who doesn't know how to use it. Doctrine and theological facts alone, even biblical applications, have a propensity to lead a person to pride. An elevation of self and a belittling of others. And if ever we saw it in the church, it is certainly in the area of know-it-all Christians. We should all ask ourselves as we read this chapter, am I one of those know-it-all Christians? I have to ask myself that question regularly. You have no idea how fine the line is between being a preacher and a know-it-all. I have to pray often, Lord, help me not to cross that line. Help me to remember that I am just the messenger. You are the one. Your word is the one who knows it all. Albert Barnes says this in his commentary. The man who relies on his knowledge is heady, high-minded, obstinate, contentious, vexatious, perverse, opinionated, and most of the difficulties in the church arise from such people. Now, just for record, you know why I quote commentaries, right? Because I could get out never get away with saying that kind of stuff to my church. Sadly, too many Christians mistakenly pursue higher knowledge as an end and not as a means, and it tends to spoil their Christian testimony. It tends to spoil their relationship with others. What did Jesus say in John 13, 35? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you know my truth. So get back to the books, boys. Is that what it said? No. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is not to put down knowledge, truth, doctrine, etc. It is to elevate the primary importance of love, to elevate heart matters over head matters, to remind us that truth is about changing the way we live and not just changing what we know. In contrast to knowledge alone, Paul points out that love edifies. That's the Greek word akoidomeo, which literally means the word edify literally means to build a house, to construct. The point is simple. Love builds others up instead of tearing them down. It strengthens, it fortifies, it creates for good. And furthermore, Paul points out in verse 2 that it is love, not knowledge, that attracts the attention of God. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Knowledge will not give us a relationship with God. Loving him for who he truly is will give relationship. Matthew 7, and 23, we see this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Love 
supersedes knowledge and faith and hope, as we'll see in chapter 13. Can't wait to get to that chapter. We know from the greatest commandment that love includes the heart, the soul, and the mind. So it's on this foundational point of love versus just having the right head knowledge that Paul builds his entire case for limiting our liberties. And he uses the pagan stakes situation to make his point. Meat, sacrifice to idols. In studying passages like this, I find it very helpful to search the text for the bottom line and then to go back and study the text from that vantage point. So based on the foundation of love, we find one of our first vantage points in verse 9. Here's the command. This is the action item. This is what the first, first eight verses we're all pointing to. He says in verse 9, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is a very simple truth. But we need to be careful in how we define stumbling block. My sense is that that verse gets thrown around way too carelessly and often incorrectly. It's used as a manipulation tool is what it is. And that's not right. Paul never meant it that way. I would propose from the text that stumbling block does not mean hurt another Christian's feelings or do something they disagree with or do something they even think is unwise or, or even do something that saddens fellow believers. It can include those things, but it is much more. Paul's use of stumbling block goes further than that. He very carefully defines it in the next two verses, verses 10 and 11. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, keyword, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So even though he doesn't understand, will he not eat and therefore violate his conscience? Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. Keyword number two, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And back in verse 7, we see that Paul points out that their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul defines stumbling block this way. Anything that defiles another believer's conscience and ruins their faith. That is the level of severity that Paul is referring to in these passages and in this understanding of a stumbling block. If we read a great cross-reference passage on this topic, Romans 14, we see this in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in another brother's way. And in the rest of that passage, he uses words like hurt and destroy, referencing their faith. Paul is driving us to a bottom line, heart attitude question, application question number one. How important to me, to me, to each of us, this is a personal question, how important to me is the spiritual growth of others in my church family? This is a real measuring stick when it comes to measuring Christian maturity. What of my rights and privileges and entitlements am I willing to sacrifice for the growth of God's people around me? When we boil away all the religious knowledge, we find out whether we really care or not about our church family. 
And sadly, we sometimes choose the New York, New York stake over the spiritual growth of those sitting next to us. We are willing at times to cause hurt to their faith in order to eat what we want, do what we want, go where we want, enjoy what we want, etc. Again, even though we know that it truly hurts and ruins and destroys, devastates their faith. Why is this such a big issue? Verse 12. By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. There it is again. This is a God issue. That brother and sister of Christ in, uh, in Christ that we offend is the least of our worries. We offend Christ. That's why this matter in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 is something that we had better take into consideration and understand and implement and honor. What was Paul's conclusion on the matter? Verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. This is not complicated. As much as we would like to complicate it and draw an interpretation that relieves us of our Christian duties to one another, it is not complicated. Can you and I echo what Paul just said in verse 13? There's something very important to notice here. Paul did not say, therefore, if food causes your brother to stumble, you must never eat meat again. No, he doesn't drop a command here. He simply sets an example. When he says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. There's somewhat of a sense here, which we saw last week as well, in which Paul is magnificently teaching by example. He is urging by example. I can't make you live like this. I can't force you to be kind and to show deference. I can't demand that you yield your rights and privileges so that others can grow in their faith. But you should. And that's what I'm going to do, is what Paul's saying. Paul is pointing to the higher road for believers. Yes, we have the freedom. Yes, we can indulge, but take care, he says. Back in verse 9, take care. Be careful that you don't somehow become a stumbling block to the weaker Christian. That word somehow says something. He's not just talking about the obvious offenses. He's saying go the extra mile. Inquire, think about it. Make sure that you don't inadvertently even become a stumbling block to the faith of others. These are powerful truths. Doing so, being a stumbling block, is not love. It's knowledge, and it's arrogant. In chapter 9, we see that Paul further sets and elaborates on the example. In these first several verses, he basically says, look at my rights. I'm just like you. I can eat what I want. I have a right to get married, to go on vacation, to get paid for being a pastor and missionary. The scripture entitles me to benefits. But again, what does everything in chapter 8 and the first several verses of chapter 9 point to? Verse 12 in chapter 9. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul just took us to another vantage point. 
he focuses and he forces us to ask ourselves application question number two. How important to me is the progress of the gospel in and through my church family? When we boil away all the religious knowledge, we find out whether we really care about the gospel going forward. What am I willing to sacrifice or endure so that I don't hinder, but rather propel the ministry of the gospel to people in my church and outside of it? Paul goes on in verse 18 to say that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. You know as well as I do, we live in a day where everyone wants to know what? Their rights. All of them. We live in a demanding society. What's mine is mine, and I deserve all of it. We saw this in the lawsuits problems that we addressed last week in the prior chapter, a couple chapters, here a couple weeks ago. Here, here, Paul demonstrated true Christ-likeness when he shared his goal in verse 18. He did everything he could, using, in, including the um, letting go, the yielding of his own rights and privileges as a pastor and missionary. He did everything he could to propel the gospel. Instead of seeing himself as deserving, verse 19, he made himself a slave to all. That's an apostle talking. We studied that back in chapter 4 when Paul made it clear. I just want everyone to regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Right here in verse 18, why? So that I may win more. More. The Christian life was an Olympic-sized challenge to Paul. Verse 24, it was a race and he wanted to win, and he wanted to win a lot. He wanted to do whatever it took. He became all things to all men, meaning he let go of everything he could. He lived a sacrificial lifestyle. It doesn't mean that he wore a suit in one church and then skinny jeans in the next. It doesn't mean that he chose, changed his lingo from one body to the next. That is not at all what this context is communicating. That's ridiculous. He wasn't a chameleon Christian. That is hardly an authentic faith. He didn't resort to changing. He wasn't cool or witty. He already told us this in prior chapters. He, he, instead, he simply showed deference no matter where he was. When he was with the Jews, he did everything he could to show deference. When he was with the Greeks, the non-Jews, he did everything he could. When he was with the slave, he did everything he could to, he could to respect them. When he was with the freemen, same thing. Why? so that by all means he might save some. Verse 22, and then in verse 23, he summed it up again. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That sounds like a life purpose verse worth claiming. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Application question number three. Is everything I do ultimately for the gospel? The purchases I make, the way I spend my time, the hobbies I choose, the vacations I go on, the work I do, the days I serve in the church, the books I read, ultimately is everything for the sake of the gospel. 
You know, that's, that's a lot to ask of a Christian. Or is it? Didn't Christ call us to pick up our cross and to die to self? To die, to lay down our life for him, for the life to come? This is not a lot to ask of Christians. Why? Because Jesus had already done this for us. He picked up his cross and he carried it. And he laid down his life for us and for the life to come. And he overwhelmingly conquered. That's the amazing end of the story. He didn't just die. He didn't just come back to life. He overwhelmingly conquers. And the same steps are ours for the taking. Pick up our cross. Follow him and lay down our life. And then overwhelmingly conquer. Verse 25. He says, there is an imperishable prize awaiting for us. But we'd better be careful how we live this life and run this race. Paul said in verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And he is an apostle in all of his wisdom, with all of his experience, with all of his accomplishments was concerned with the danger of being disqualified. How much more should we be concerned? This wasn't a risk of losing his salvation. It was a risk risk of losing his witness and his power for God. It was a risk of losing some who might have been saved. It was a risk of damaging the very church for which Christ died. He gives us a lens to view these relationships for, to view them through. If God lays down his life, can't you and I lay down a meal for the spiritual growth of others? Paul uses the first portion of chapter 10 now to continue this warning to us. He says, we must not make the same mistakes that the people of God made in the past, referencing Israel. In a sense, tells us in the first four verses of chapter 10. In a sense, Israel had it all. God rescued them. He guided them. He miraculously protected them, even in parting the Red Sea and swallowing up the Egyptian army. He led them through the desert, with the cloud, with the fire, at day and at night. God identified with them. He provided for them both physically and spiritually. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was with them and was their nourishment, their spiritual nourishment. These are amazing things. They had it all. But then we read verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, that's amazing, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That means they, were, they died and they were buried in the wilderness. If you know the Old Testament wilderness account, God kept the original generation that went into the wilderness from going into the promised land. All but two of them, including their leaders, Moses and Aaron, everyone over age 19 had to die in the wilderness because they were not allowed into the promised land. The only two as you probably know, who were allowed to live and go into Canaan were Joshua and Caleb, excuse me, Jacob and Caleb. 
Joshua. That's what I get when I type too fast. Everyone else was, get this, everyone else in Israel was what? Disqualified. They were still the people of God, but they missed the blessing. And Paul says in verse 6, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. The text says they were idolaters, they were immoral, they tested God's patience to see how much they could get away with, and they grumbled. Those four things, they complained. They were not thankful. And what was the result? Tens of thousands of them were killed instantly for their lack of faith and their craving of evil things. You know, spiritual immaturity really does boil down to a desire to have, to experience, to enjoy that which God has forbidden. Sin. So many people, including believers, just want to enjoy and experience sin for a season. Paul warns us, be careful what you crave. To not appreciate the cross and to desire the world is to tempt God. And in his sovereignty, his patience has a limit. His chastening will fall on both the unjust and the just. Sadly, many Christians think that they can get away with it. It is to them that Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You think you can get away with it. Take heed lest you fall. But in true gospel style, the lesson doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. We're just getting to the good part. Verse 13 this is why every one of us is even here. It's why we are Christians. It's why we can face tomorrow. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Notice, God is in control even of temptations and the level of trials that come our way. Nothing exists outside of his sovereignty. That is of tremendous relief and hope when we are in the middle of a trial. God has not allowed Satan to do whatever he wants. God has allowed Satan to do whatever he ordains, whatever God ordains. This is an amazing doctrinal truth here. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Not only is God in control, he is faithful. The two must go together. It's one thing to be good. It's another thing to be good always. It's one thing to be right. It's another to be right always. It's one thing to be in control, but another to be in control always. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. You know Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul continues to affirm here that with every temptation, God will provide a way of escape, an exit door, an out, a path to safety and victory. But what does that last phrase say? So that you will be able 
to endure it. We have to remember that sometimes the exit door does not come as fast as we want. Sometimes that exit door will not even come in this lifetime, but it will come. God is faithful, and he gives endurance all the way to the end. It is because of this hope that Paul can say in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. There is, this is nothing more and nothing less than the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourself. And Paul reminds us again, just because you can doesn't mean you should. He's been teaching that in past chapters, and here he reminds us again, all things are lawful, but not all are profitable, and not all edify. What is the sum of the matter? Again, verse 31 to 33. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, because Paul knows we would take this truth and only apply it to idol meat and say, well, we don't eat idol meat anymore. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, that's the non-Jews, or to the church of God, that is everyone, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Paul echoed this to the Romans in Romans 14, verses 19 to 20. He said, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. This is a pretty simple truth, isn't it? There we have it. Christian love. We are often called on by God to sacrifice some of our rights and privileges and pleasures for the sake of the gospel. This is not a complicated marching order. Do what's best for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do what's best for the gospel and do what's best for the glory of God. We often want direction. Lord, help me to know how to make a decision. Well, there are three filters to use right off the bat. We have to love and appreciate the simplicity of godliness. We looked at three general application questions throughout our study. To wrap up, here are five specific application questions that we can also pull from these chapters. You might think of other questions. By all means, share those in your SALT group. But here are five to get us going. Number one, and these are listed on the back of your SALT starter in the bulletin there. Number one, will this action respect the conscience of my fellow believers, particularly those who are weaker or younger in the faith? Number two, will my behavior encourage others to sin against their conscience and thus damage their faith? That's what Paul is talking about here. Remember the words ruin and hurt and destroy. Again, Paul is not talking about, we need to be clear on this, Paul is not talking about petty little things. Another, that's another sermon for another day on how to give others some space and the freedom to exercise their faith without us getting all bent out of shape when they choose differently than we would. Paul started setting this example in the last chapter. He had wisdom to share on whether or not to get married. He said, but if you do, it's not a sin. He gave people the freedom to exercise their liberty in Christ, and so should we. 
But Paul, so Paul isn't talking about petty issues. How our hearts break every time we see a person fall away from the faith because of the hypocritical and selfish testimony of someone else in the church. Let's be very clear, that person is fully responsible for their own behavior. They will have to give an account to God. But what a tragedy to be the one that they point at as their excuse for sin. How much better to be the one they point at when they are edified and built up and go on to do great things for God? Question number three. Will my behavior edify and benefit others? A couple weeks ago, my SALT group reminded us, don't just ask, is there anything wrong with it? Ask, is there anything right with it? In this case, will my example, will my behavior have a profitable effect? on others, especially my church family, especially fellow believers. Number four, do I consider myself a servant in the church and am I behaving like one? Again, I appreciated the comment that my mom shared in Salt Group a week or two ago. We know we're a servant if we act like one when we're treated like one. That kind of hurts the spiritual pride, doesn't it? That is definitely the rubber squealing on the road. Question number five, will this ultimately bring glory to God? It is a simple but profound question. Will this bring glory to God? When others look at the way I live, will they see how good and how right and how wonderful God is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, ultimately, that's, that's what we pray. But we know how far we fall short of being that kind of a testimony. But that's what we want, and we know that your grace is sufficient to be that. Lord, help us to be mindful of these things. Only you know the, the various situations and contentions that exist in our church family right now between one person and another. There are hurts, there are offenses, there are stumbling blocks. There are times when people just won't give each other the freedom to exercise their liberty. Lord, give us wisdom in these matters, and you have given us wisdom today. Help us to recognize that Paul was simply following the example of Jesus when he says, I didn't hold on to all of my rights and privileges. I did everything I could, endured everything I could, so that I would not hinder the gospel, but so that many might be saved. Lord, help us to take that going for the prize mentality when it comes to our faith. So easy to take a mediocre attempt to faith, knowing we've been saved. But what a challenge. What a challenge to pray that by your grace, we might win more. We love you, Lord. I thank you for the truth of the gospel. If there are any here, who do not understand the words of what we have talked about today, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have the wisdom of God guiding our life and the forgiveness of God removing our guilt and the faithfulness of God giving us hope for not only the rest of this life, but for the life to come. Lord, if there's one here who does not understand these truths, I pray that they would understand today. Give them the courage to come to me or anyone else in this church to ask, what is the hope that you've got? Thank you, Lord for the hope you give in Jesus' name, amen.